1: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms.
0: Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. This is episode 190, and if you're wondering about the potential economic impact of the country's shutdown from COVID-19 and what our new reality might look like, then today is going to be a great show for you, because on the show today, I have Scott Shea, who is the co-founder and chairman of New York Signature Bank, which is the 40th largest bank in the U.S., and is publicly traded. And Scott is also the chairman of an investment committee of an Israel private equity fund. Scott grew Signature Bank up to 1,400 employees with $500 million in net income last year and $50 billion in assets all without a single acquisition. Scott has recently also become the author of In Good Faith, which he explores the fundamental questions of good faith and reason. And I absolutely had a blast in today's show because I was able to geek out on the economics of today, what's gonna be the financial impact of the shutdown in the situation, and what Scott's thoughts are on what the future could hold. I was able to cover a lot of ground with someone who's at the ground floor of the economic impact that the pandemic is gonna have on our country. Economy. And Scott's also been through the 87 stock market crash, the dot com bubble, 9 2008. And he's able to share some of his wisdom and insights from being in the banking industry and having a significant role with policymakers on. What should we be doing right now and what's going to be the impact? Some of the things that you're going to learn in this episode is how Scott grew the bank to a publicly held company with $50 billion in assets and 1,400 employees without an acquisition. He's going to talk about the economic impact and the aftermath of COVID-19. We have a conversation about the new reality of business valuations and why the discount rate that's used to value companies is going to have to change. He talks about his golden rule of banking and how you can be implementing that in today's uncertain world as you're working with suppliers, vendors, and your bank. Scott's going to share his interesting perspectives on how acquisitions and the world of M&A fit into what we know as the efficient market. And Throughout the entire interview, we're just overall talking about the impact that this entire situation is going to have on our country, whether it's the corporate debt that a lot of public companies have and how they're going to maintain their stability if they don't have any revenue. We talk about the impact on private equity firms who have been leveraging up to buy companies over the years and what that's going to mean to them, how it's going to impact the pension funds, and then also even Americans who, if a huge percentage of Americans cannot afford a $400 random event, how can they handle being out of work for weeks? weeks, potentially months. It's a fantastic conversation that we just go back and forth that I think that you're going to get a lot of takeaways from or at least some insights that you can continue to research as this entire story unfolds. And regardless of when you're listening to this, if you're in the in the thick of it with the COVID-19 or if it's after the fact and we're still watching our new reality take place, there's a lot of good takeaways from someone that has been through a lot in his career in banking as he's grown a very successful large bank out of New York. Scott then wraps up the interview, sharing his ideas about how people from different perspectives, whether it's religion, politics, or you name the subject, can come together, have really good debates, how you should not leave your brain at the door, so we can start figuring out the solutions to problems instead of just polarizing ourselves into different camps. Because of the current situation with lots of people sitting at home and not being able to gather together in groups... Pat Hobby, who is my business partner, I'm working on a digital video course on the intentional growth five principles. And it will be the best of our material that we have in our two-day boot camps that normally cost five grand, but we're gonna be putting out our video course for 295 bucks. And if you text the word intentional to 66 866. You'll get on the waiting list for the digital course. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to teach you how to build a valuable company with the end in mind using our five intentional growth principles. So for example, in principle number two, you're going to learn everything about how companies are valued, deal structures, how to calculate enough proceeds. And this helps whether you want to sell your company today, just know what it's worth or Prepare to sell down the road. In principle number three, you're going to learn the five major exit buckets, which is internal, ESOPs, private equity, and more, and what the implications of each of those are. And then in principle number four, you're going to learn how to increase your multiple and the valuation of your company by de risking your cash flow and how you can be building your financial models and your strategic plan and tying it to the long term value growth that you're looking for. So now is the time to shoot us a text at 66866. Text the word intentional to 66866 and we will put you on the waiting list and we're probably a few weeks out from launching the digital course. But until we have that ready, enjoy this interview
1: with Scott Shea sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Scott, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Good to see you, Ryan. Other than the state of the world,
0: <laughs> I was just going to say we are both uh, uh, kind of quarantined. I'm at, I'm at home. We I, it's funny because I I just sent my kids to daycare, so it's like there's a lot of hypocrisy of like the, some of the things that we're doing from stay at home, but then also you, you have to. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be to to maintain in order to to keep the world going. And your business is definitely one of them. If money doesn't flow, what happens? Nothing. <laughs> People be out with pitchforks.
2: No, we're one of the essential. We're one of the essential businesses that um, are required to stay open. I mean, it's hospitals first, pharmacies, grocery stores, and banks. And frankly, you know, we're extremely busy. In we've sent as many people home as can be home. We're doing banking, uh, really by appointment, even coming into the offices, the branches, as it were. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of decisions that we need to make. And so it is a fulsome time. It's not, I mean, it, it's not like, uh, you know, we're, you know, anybody sitting around eating grapes or thinking about <laughs> right. the next craft beer. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, right. So what we, what I want, you and I talked about it on the uh, kind of prep call is, we can do a couple of different things because you've got one heck of a story that I want to dive into, how you grew Signature Bank and some of the stuff that you've done. You've written a book, but then also we're in the middle of a—you know something that has not ever happened with this pandemic. So uh, I'll, we can kind of take in whatever order you want, Scott, but I, I want people to understand Kind of the gravity of your situation because you've been through you know a lot of different recessions um, as you've grown organically your your bank and so you've seen from the ground floor a lot of different things so I think maybe we tell the story and then uh, we can kind of get into some of the, the the current day affairs because it lends some credibility from what you've what you've been through before.
2: Well, I'll just to, to take it to go real far back. I mean, my I, I'm the first one on either side of my on either. Sides of my family to have ever attended college, my father was a holocaust survivor. I'd mentioned that in the prep call and um and um, my mother's family had just arrived not that long before she was born and you know I grew up in a one bedroom apartment where I lived in the dining room. My mother's brother lived in the living room for a few years, and my parents had the bedroom so i I never thought I'd be chairman of a 50 plus billion dollar bank in candor, Uh, And it's a, (laughs) it's an interesting, (laughs) I was hoping for college and I was so thrilled that I was able to go to college. Then I went to business school. Then I went to wall street and I got there in time for the 1987 crash for the 1989 mini crash. I was on wall street during the during the bond market crash that happened in the 90s. That was pretty amazing, although it gets less press because it was the bond market. The 1998 long-term capital markets crash, panic, actually would be a better term. The, the NASDAQ bubble bursting in 2000, obviously 2008 mortgage crisis. But I would have to tell you that this current COVID-19 crash and instant recession pla- slash perhaps depression right. has a different feel than any of those, which is really amazing. In and no you know, way. You, you first of all, what's really amazing is the 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 suddenness and the uncertain time frame. So there were companies. Let me just give an example. We're a, we're one of the banks that uh, that we're one of the major banks to Broadway. We're in New York. As oh yeah, there you go. I know. So we're a major bank to Broadway. So they were Broadway shows were basically full the week before Governor Cuomo decided to close Broadway, and it closed on a Thursday afternoon when people had their tickets for that evening and they were on their way to the show. Um, I happened to personally have tickets that night for a Broadway show, and boom! I, you know, I had, was thinking about it and whether it was wise and all of that, but I had tickets, as did most people. Now, in a in a heartbeat, all of those actors, actresses, ushers, people who are selling the 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 the, the tickets, everybody people uh, who are uh. the directors, people who are selling, you know, the at the bar, everybody is out of a job.
0: I know, and
2: it's crazy. It's just amazing. So we've seen companies that, you know, just and that's one of the reasons why we're here and 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 working. I mean, we've seen companies that went from thriving companies to having no revenues, right? Like not just like a dip, but like gone, like gone. just.
0: And it, it you know, it's so crazy, Scott, because like I'm in a, uh I, I spend a lot of time doing keynotes to CEO peer groups and CEO in business owner communities, online entrepreneurs communities, and the chatter that's going on is is crazy. So I talked to a gentleman yesterday, he has a CEO peer group company where they've got like 220 members or something like that. And mm-hmm. uh it, like you said, and I you know, and given my age, I haven't I, I graduated and so helped ter- turn around the family business around the financial crisis. So very real experience for me of what cash flow management was like on a you know quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. But it's just different because when I, when I was talking to the CEO peer group owner, he's like just the uncertainty, like you just you, versus like the the crisis, the financial crisis where boom, you have to bail out the banks and you have to refix the plumbing to keep the plumbing right. going. but people still went. To Broadway they still went to right. a restaurant they still got on a plane they still did stuff and like this is like I, I like I, I don't know what your thoughts are is like I think we're like living in a case study of the demand versus supply side e- economics we're like if people don't buy stuff what happens to the economy it just disappears
2: right. well and yes after all the crashes people would still go to Broadway and people knew that that was going to happen after 9-11 people knew sooner or later it would be a different world, but they'd go back to the world. Mm-hmm. And now people don't know how long this shutdown is gonna be, and whether or not once everyone's once the shutdown ends, and then new people are affected, whether we're gonna have to return to the shutdown. Right. It's it's the uncertainty. Human beings don't like uncertainty. I mean, we are wired. Literally wired for routine, and we can incorporate a new routine relatively quickly. but when you couple this the, the 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 suddenness of the financial this financial downturn, the wealth evaporation I mean the stock market is down over a third in two weeks that's essentially never happened before in this kind of way you have people really uneasy and i think that for businesses it means going back to basics mm-hmm. um, really really basics so i have what i call really the golden rule of banking and i can't take credit for it because the golden rule came way before me but don't do unto your depositor your borrower your colleague, your counterparty, your vendor, anything that would be hateful if done unto you. Right. <laughs> that's how he'll defined the golden rule. The rest is commentary. Go, yeah. uh, go, go learn it. I mean, we have a, at Signature Bank, we have like every other bank that's mandated to do so. We have a, uh, your, your, your listeners can't see me showing my fingers to how thick of a standards of conduct that we have. But, A few years ago, I read it and I marked it up myself and said at the beginning, look, basically, if you follow the golden rule of banking, you're going to be good. You got to read the rest of this because the regulators and everybody else wants us to read the rest of this. But if you just keep in mind, don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you, then you're going to be good. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't need to collect loans and we don't need to track down people and we don't need to, you know, someone does something, you know, incorrectly or wrongly or fraudulently that we're not. Supposed to chase that because that's fair. Yep. But you really need to think in these times. What if I were in that other person's place? And these times, more than most, we're talking to you know we're talking to clients and staying very very close to them. And I think you know, in all candor, that what happened in the OA crisis was the opposite of that. Because everybody involved in the mortgage crisis—everybody's a big word—but most people involved in the mortgage crisis thought differently. They thought, you know what? If I can get away with putting these mortgages into a conduit, and I not have to worry about. I don't have to worry about uh, whether they're going to pay back yeah. or not because someone else See is going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> See, ya. or yeah. and by the way, there were plenty of liars. Loans. You know what? I'm making. You know. Uh, you know. People who said they were making. Two hundred thousand when they were making fifty thousand because they wanted to buy the home and figured it's going to go up in value. They're going to refinance. They're going to sell it. They're going to flip it. You know, stated income. um, It's the beauty. (laughs) Stated income loans. You know, they were putting essentially they were deifying themselves. They were saying, you know, everybody else is not like me. Now you wouldn't want someone to do that to you. And and look at the rating agencies. I mean, they were rating stuff triple A. Right. That, you know, later on, it was clear they knew was, you know, fecal material.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good, very PG way of putting it. <laughs> well, so, and I agree with you, Scott. And so here's what I, what it's interesting, though, like from the world that I live in, and I know you, you spend a lot of time in the privately held companies, you're banking them. You also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, are a partner at a private equity firm, and there, there's private equity has been insanely hot over the last handful of years. First of all, you got over the last 12 years you have you have uh people chasing returns, so pension funds, endowments, corporations, b- corporate buybacks, all this activity trying to generate returns that have been very difficult especially with the liabilities that people have. People meaning the the pension funds or corporations or the just the growth goals that they have to hit. And then the, the things that I like what I find just crazy that like, you know, I've Ray Dalio is like, I love everything that he comes out with. I like consume as fast as I can. And the fundamentals have been broken because of how chase, you know, how many people are chasing these returns. And so it was kind of like, we all know this is going to happen because I mean, I, Scott, I had someone at the end of my, uh, one of my keynotes, it was a veterinary clinic that came up and said, I'm getting 14 times EBITDA And he's not even the platform company. I'm like, well, what the hell? Do you have a cure for horse cancer? Like, this is insane. So like, what happens is you have not only just the pressure of the economy, but the revenue dried up like that. Like you said, so you have very little wiggle room for the debt service and the stuff that's going on in the economy that just, I just don't understand how like the, the, the ripple effect, because when you layer on the uncertainty of when this could correct, how you can
2: even handle some of that. Well, in the long term, what we're going to find is that discount rates will have to go up Mm -hmm. because the discount rates that everybody assumed were taking into account a perfect world. And we have been reminded now that not only don't we live in a perfect world, but we can't even see because it's microscopic, the sort of things that are going to upend all of our assumptions. And so I think you're going to have, people think we're going to just bounce right back in terms of the the markets. I don't think that's the case. I think it's going to take a while. And I think people are going to have to prove the solidity of their cash flows. I think in the entertainment, particularly though in the travel, tourism, hotel business, I mean, everybody is always going to be mindful that another... H1N1, another, I mean, an H, H yeah, H1N1 or another SARS or another COVID-19 can appear. Thank God this isn't the influenza of 1918. No no kidding. That, I mean, this was, was that the Black bad. Death or was that the Black Death? No, or is no, that, no, that, no was that was, is that the it, Spanish flu you're talking about? Yeah, the so-called Spanish flu, yeah, okay. but you know, whatever. It's, it wasn't really a Spanish flu. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. That yeah, was the, the name. Yep. It was, Yeah. There was a worldwide pandemic and it, it was, a, you know, a serious problem. And that, frankly, you know, I mean, more people died from more people died from the flu than died from all the casualties in World War One. It was pretty intense. And I think I'm not sure if I recall this statistic right. But I think more soldiers actually fell from the flu than fell in actual battle casualties. Hmm. So it was a terrible, terrible flow. We haven't had that. Right. You know, I mean, this is, a, you know, a warm up for that. Well, and I hope so, it's not. A, I mean, this is a, yeah, a much smaller yeah. version of
0: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I know what you mean. Um, the, so going back to when you say like the discount rate has to actually reflect reality, which is, right. I mean, it, it's interesting, Scott, because yeah, like as over the, like my career, the short term career that I've had, in, in M and, and business valuations. I'm like, I, I'm, I watch the hysteria, but on the sidelines of, as a consultant as a, and as a podcaster and, and, and educator where I'm watching going, I wouldn't want to deploy that money for the life of me. Cause like in these, you know, really good private equity firms that have been in the game forever are, are losing bids because people are using insane discount rates. And right. now you have this, Oh, by the way, we're in reality again. And so, you know, I, I don't know if you follow, you probably do Nassim, that anti fragile book that he wrote. I mean, his whole concept of as you get bigger, and I watched your TEDx Wall Street on the bigger banks, you know, you become more fragile, right? And you can't absorb a shock like that. And I I think what's different even now is we're in a global economy where all, all these countries are like, you know, bleeding with debt. and we're all intertwined with the with the investments we have and i just i just don't know if like people can
2: actually understand how to, how this is all going to unfold yeah well you're 100% right so my ted talk which you can find on ted.com or on youtube or my website com S-H-A-Y, is probably the easiest way to find it i i think that the overconcentration that's happened in the economy is actually Bad not just for the companies in the end, but it's what's much worse is it, that it's bad for us as individuals and it's bad for businesses. So in the old days, you used to have in New York in the 90s when I had this crazy idea to, to start Signature Bank, we, you had J.P. Morgan. You also had Chase. You had Manny Hanny. You had Chemical. You had Trust Company of Westchester. You had great, you had Long Island Trust. You had Greater New York Savings Bank. I could go on and on. You had about nineteen banks in the early nineties that are now J.P. Morgan Chase today. So if you were a young entrepreneur at that time, or you're an entrepreneur, or you and you need you want to go to a bank and get a loan for you know expanding, well. You would have nineteen banks to go to. And you know what? You only need one to say yes. <laughs> that's the truth See of the matter. That, right. That's a great now. Good you have one choice. JP Morgan Chase. And they, so the it's not only that there's a fragility. I totally totally agree with Nassim Taleb. I think the over concentration, we have essentially four airlines that have what, sixty-five percent of all US flight traffic? Yeah. We have six banks that have way over the majority, way of, you know, like 60% of the U.S. banking assets. We have, if you go down and down, it's, I mean, consumer is a little less a little less concentrated, but every industry has allowed to become over-concentrated, including telecom. Yeah. And, you know, the problem is, And this is what I really do worry about in a serious kind of way is that when the system gets stressed right now, even in telecom, I mean, right now we're, we're, we're on the internet and we're, we're looking at each other and we're talking to each other. Three weeks ago, we were using, you know, 20, 30% of our internet capacity. (laughs) Now it's probably 70%. Right. right. My my wife is behind me
0: in her, her room all, or in in our spare bedroom with a makeshift right. desk doing video conferencing with 14 people across the world.
2: <laughs> right. And and all the universities are doing their classes by by using, you know, one of the various teleconferencing firms. The local schools are doing it. New York is about to So we're in a because we have one infrastructure and a few providers that's also more fragile Mm -hmm. you know everything that in modern life is so convenient but yet becoming more and more fragile and it's a serious concern and and that's why i think that ultimately discount rates will need to go up somewhat to take into account gee we didn't realize that we were living in a little bubble in our own little dream world, totally. And and what I find some of the stats that I've been following that I
0: find unbelievably intriguing, Scott, is that so there are like a little over thirty nine hundred public companies, and there are over eight thousand private equity backed companies. Because like when, when I look at the, the the different competing interests of like what what has been driving a lot of this is you can't manufacture growth i mean it's been artificial to a certain extent and you have this like you know this this kind of fictitious game of MA bullshit that i've watched people play where like okay they're driving up either if it's public they're driving up their 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 own stock price but if it's private equity you know certain you're, you're able to kind of report what you're what you're whatever you want in the, in the, in the in the light of trying to get your carried interest and all that stuff which makes sense but there hasn't I, like There's been no way to see like are people actually getting the return that is above and beyond their cost of capital for acquiring that company, right? Like, like, is it becoming efficient by acquiring that, or is it just the short term? And like, and because I I see you smiling, so I want to hear your your feedback on this. But just to give you some context of a story, is my partner's company was bought by a PE firm for way more than it should have, and these. It was a multi-billion-dollar firm in your neck of the woods. There was twelve individuals that ran this firm. They rolled up eighteen companies in eighteen months with thousands of employees. And I've like, I turned around a family business, and I work with a lot of private health entrepreneurs. And it's like, could you imagine integrating eighteen? Companies in the systems and the processes, payroll, IT, just an in Outlook integration, like and everybody just laughs. And I go, now just, just assume it went all perfect. You still have eighteen cultures. Are you going to have more value or not, or is it just in the short game to hand off the bag to someone else? And so, like, I just like it's just. So I know you're laughing at me. So like, I want you to. I want your feedback on the cost of capital. Above and beyond, you know, getting the value from an acquisition because you have built your company without any acquisitions, which I find very intriguing. Well,
2: that's why people thought it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, people thought, well, why don't you get a group together? Why don't you get some capital? And actually, the capital that backed Signature Bank was Bank of Pauling, And they preferred that we buy a bank as a base. And my two partners actually. Joe DiPaolo and John Tamerlan will both tell you that they both wanted to buy a bank, a small bank, and then start from there. And I was pretty adamant. I'm a pretty, you know, in some regards, I'm a stubborn person. (laughs) Um, My wife would probably uh, say amen to that, (laughs) but I don't, I'm not stubborn all the time. But when I think that something's really mission critical, then I'm stubborn. And so I said that we can't build this bank unless we started from scratch. And that means applying to 14 regulatory agencies, which is what we had to do and getting approvals and figuring out, you know, buying ATM machines from scratch, every single thing from scratch. Good for you guys. And we have never made an acquisition. So whenever we, we have looked at them in the past, but whenever we do, we say, should we be spending our time doing this, and as you say, manufacturing growth, or actually trying to bring clients in by figuring out how to get better service? <laughs> well, and that's a novel idea, right? It's a novel idea, and I'm very proud of the fact that look, we start out with 42 and a half million in capital, we're a 50 plus billion dollar bank today, and it's all been from every client wanting to come in the door. You know, that's we so didn't cool. we can't force anybody in the door, <laughs> and. And you know, sometimes it's interesting, you know, I talk to people who evaluate us in other banks and they're evaluating banks that bought this bank, that bank, and the other bank. And I'm thinking, you don't get it. But the reason I was laughing actually is that I've been thinking about this my whole life. My master's degree thesis was paying the right price in an efficient market, which actually got published in nineteen in the journal Emergency. Years ago, I I didn't post this. It's before they even had internet. I don't know if it's even online. (laughs) But I've been thinking about this since I was a student. Is if you believe in an efficient market, how can you pay over the? How can you pay over the stock market price? It doesn't make any sense. Right, totally. If all the information is embedded in the stock price, how are you going to make any money by buying something? Well, you got to think you're smarter than everybody else, and that's a little bit of self-deification too.
0: That's so intriguing. You're so right, though. I mean, because like you're you're essentially swapping equal value, then, right? I mean, like that uh, constantly. I mean, if it's actually an efficient market, so if it's an efficient market, right? Oh, that's so, so intriguing. So, like, given the fact that there's been a lot of this manufactured growth of, you know, whether it's, you know, again, whether it's public uh, companies or whether it's um, private equity companies or, you know, and and I see less of it in the single family business or, you know, sole entrepreneur that started it like you, because their, their debt, their equity rate, debt to equity ratio is probably not too bad because they've got, they don't have a lot of this leverage. How do you see this unfolding when you just slash revenues? I mean, to the extent that we're seeing with a lack of certainty of when this can turn around. Cause you can't even go out and invest in systems processes, hire people when you have no freaking clue when it's going to come back. And it just, how do you see this whole thing normalizing? I mean, I watched, you know, you got the trillion dollar package that's getting uh, pushed out right now. Neil Kashkari, local guy here is talking about, uh, you know, some sort of small business loan on a percentage or
2: based on revenue. Like how do you see this whole thing normalizing well, I am giving some suggestions I don't want to go into I uh, and you know go into any of this but I have been giving some suggestions to policymakers because I do think there's some things we can do to accelerate our exit from this strange period but I I, I, I want to say I think um, this the Warren Buffett used to say that you don't know how Many people are swimming naked until the tide resides. It <laughs> goes out. And it's as though the moon has just moved, um, you know, 20,000 kilometers further out or miles, whatever, 20, 000, 20 million yeah, miles yeah, further yeah, yeah. out, whatever you want to say. But the tide has shifted dramatically. And there are going to be some businesses, sadly, which will not make it through this period. And I think there's going to be a variety. I think, and I think that's going to be pretty tragic for many people. And I'm actually one of those folks that think that ultimately the um, toll from the economic downturn will be greater than the toll from uh, the actual virus, in the sense that. And I'm not saying we should all go out, break the quarantine. And yeah, no, know, I'm, I'm, so. I'm, I'm not you. saying this at all. So don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually, I am not want. F- I'm telling yeah. you. <laughs> but here's the thing that we're going to have to work hard so that the, so that the toll isn't greater. Is it people whose livelihood has shriveled? I mean, there was a, there was a study and I don't know how good this study was or not, but there was a study done some time ago, which has gotten a fair amount of fame. That 40% of Americans could not find a spare $400. 400 bucks, yep. 400, yeah, 400 bucks. 400, and, and if they had an emergency. Well, all those 40% now need 400 bucks. More, way and, more than that. And more, right. Yep. And it's something that we're going to have to work on really, really quick because people who suddenly have had their livelihood turned upside down. That has a psychological toll. It is a toll where people are, uh, uh, for better or for worse, domestic abusers are mm-hmm. in this, are locked up in the same, not locked up, but they're, they're sheltered in place with their victims yep. right now. That's a huge toll. And I'm really, really worried about that. And I'm worried about the knock-on effects of people becoming unemployed we all we know that morbidity mortality sickness rates all have a strong correlation with lack of employment lack of employment opportunities so i am one of those people who's really really worried about that so i think that we have to act fast i think act fast uh, and we have to do some things that are very very different And the markets are having so much difficulty because let's say that the government comes out with a trillion dollar program tomorrow. Who's in the office to buy a trillion dollars of debt securities from the US government? Yeah. Who's got the money now with the stock market shriveled? I'm looking over toward my screen. Oh, I know. With everybody's income shriveled, with the bond market blowing out in terms of spreads are widening dramatically. So, the amount of wealth in the nation has been cut hugely. Well, and, and, and when you layer on top of like, that's
0: part of the plumbing, which is there, which is needed to get things going. But then even if you put it directly in the hands right now of the Americans, they don't have anything to buy. Right, you know what I mean. Like they can't even leave. We don't even know when this is. So, like that's where the uncertainty is is difficult to comprehend because of both sides. It's the plumbing and it's both sides of it. And to 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 piggyback off of your four hundred dollar a month comment, that's where Dalio has been talking about that for you know the inequality for a long time. But it's also like honestly, Scott. Like I watch. So, in like in our in our business, we see a lot of uh, the the uh, the balance sheets of businesses. And so, I don't know if you've ever seen these stats. And this year was going to be the year of the U.S. Census Bureau coming out with another uh, round of stats. Uh, but out of out of privately held companies, there's 27 million privately held companies in the U.S. And then six million of them. Yeah, six million of them have employees. Right. So the rest are just solopreneurs. And then you have only 21,000 privately held companies over 100 million in revenue. So it's 0.3% of all companies. And then you go down That's to a million. The 5 million to 100 million in revenue, is only 350,000 privately held companies. So you have 94% of all companies that are underneath 5 million in revenue. And I, you know, in my world, they've been talking about this. 10 trillion dollar wealth transfer. And you know what I've been saying for like years is that's total bullshit because even if you have a $3 million company and you look at valuations, which you and I live in that world, but a lot of these entrepreneurs don't, you go 3 million bucks, you might be doing 10% EBITDA, they call it 300 times it by three, 900 grand, take away your you know ordinary income taxes when you sell and they don't, they, no one saved enough money to sell. They literally cannot, they're trapped. So the, the, the entrepreneurs have the same problems as these Americans that can't afford the $400 payment. They can't afford
2: one payroll to, to be missed. Uh, it's, it's a serious problem. You're, you're, there's no question about it. I mean, it's a very serious problem. And the overconcentration, in my view, the overconcentration in the economy is part of the inequality problem. I mean, you have Google and Facebook that control what? 75-ish percent. I'm gonna be off by a few percentage points, but I'm not very off. 75-ish percent of all digital advertising. There used to be a much more diverse way, i.e., newspapers and magazines <laughs> yeah. that used to have advertising. But now you've got two two entities, and they've got one C each of them have one CEO and one CFO and one chief marketing person, as opposed to fifty magazines that each had. All of those roles and people making salaries, yep. you have you know look in the banking in in the banking world, I am amazed I, I it doesn't cease to amaze me that we're we built from scratch the fortieth biggest bank in the United States. There used to be like thirteen thousand banks now there are like now there are less than five thousand banks it's it, the the and you know again, they all used to have a CEO, a CFO. They all used to have senior people, which are, you know means consolidation. And the more consolidation you have, and it's particularly in the tech area, and in all candor, Amazon is a culprit here. I mean, because retail jobs are the largest number of jobs in the country. There are about 4 million retail jobs. And those are being converted to robots and warehouses with people making sure that everything is okay. And so the Amazonization of the com- of the country has hugely exacerbated income inequality. Even though, yes, they have folks who are working on their platform as sub retailers. Even those algorithms are driven by what's best for Amazon,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know that's a serious problem. This over when you think about a lot of industries. There's only one or two. I mean, you know, Netflix, now there's Hulu and Disney Plus, but there's not a lot in the entertainment world. There's not a lot anywhere. And so the overconcentration within the industries, you can draw a direct line to the income inequality. And also, and this is what I'm about to say was certainly true as of three weeks ago. I've got to give it more thought now. But- super low interest rates which tend to create asset bubbles prop up the stock market which is hugely concentrated again with very few people and so the 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 historic ultra low rate policies of the fed which helps you know holders of stocks and bonds and stocks should i say and allows people to pay 13 times ebitda like you were saying doesn't help savers, doesn't help retirees, and it, exa- it there's no question it exacerbates income inequality. So going back to that same playbook, I am a little concerned. I need, I will be perfectly honest, I need to think about it more because we are in a different environment, right? There but, needs to be creativity behind this. Yeah, yep. Because like,
0: I mean, like, what you know, it's the interest rates are at zero, right? We already know that this isn't working, right? I mean, like, I look. When you when you follow the money, Scott, you go, okay, well, the pension funds, the reason they've been give, like the reason it's been so easy to start a private equity firm is because people need returns. Their liabilities of the firefighter or the police officer or teacher, yep. they can't afford to pay them three grand a month. I mean, they've been playing craps with these, you know, and they have to get the returns. So I don't blame them because like they have to, but now you have their stock portfolio that dropped 30%. And the like the private equity or the VC or whatever the asset allocation is to the riskier stuff is they're both getting hit at the same time. And I just, no more, like, it doesn't matter. Interest rates are like, you can't lower them anymore to make, to make the problem lower them
2: anymore. And no one, there's not a single country that's ever recovered from negative interest rates. And this idea of negative interest rates is a disaster. Yep. And I don't know why any policymaker would think it makes sense it, it, literally no country has regained normal growth after falling into negative interest rates. And we've seen it in different Petri dishes from Japan to Western Europe. It just doesn't work. Okay. I mean, higher rates are actually healthier. Well, yeah, because people are making a return. <laughs> people are making a return. People can retire yeah, it's um, a- and it reduces income inequality. Is it because like this? So the the the, the
0: kind of the, the the combination of consolidations, the low interest rate, and then is it a lot of the short term incentives? I mean, I don't know if you follow Simon Sinek. His new book, The Infinite Game, is amazing. And that conscious capitalism—they all kind of tie into we have to do what's right for all the stakeholders, which is good growth for everybody. Like like you said, it's very much like the golden rule of banking, in like. Because of the low interest rates, the desire for growth, the short term incentives, and this acquisition, has that all kind of, in your mind, like helped propel the consolidation? Because it's an easy way. It's a quick fix for the person. It's almost like the the drug addict that's going straight for the ground. Like, you know, you need it. But, like, what Ray Daly always talks about is you need monetary policymakers and fiscal policymakers to talk to each other (laughs) and, like, have a good conversation of, like, we need to solve a big problem here, but instead people are, I mean, the,
2: the system's too hard to break. Well, look, and I talk a little bit about this in my book, In Good Faith, which is, uh, but not, it's not the, the focus in my book, but I talk a little bit about this, which is we each following our own god kings in this country, which is the problem of tribalism, the problem of separate political you know, parties that you know, won't talk to each other very much, in any case that almost demonize each other. And so good policy comes from people sitting down and working out differences and coming up with plans that don't make either party perfectly happy, but they tend to be better than if either side had won the entire argument. I mean, that's just a way of life, right? You know, is that, you know, generally nobody's got a monopoly on wisdom but we are living in an age where that doesn't happen anymore we're living in an age where you know you're either bowing down to the god of msnbc or the god of fox and the other side is not only wrong but they're evil right and 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 there's really not even any question that they're evil and they're not even worth talking to so Living in this environment, I mean, is a is a major problem for fixing huge problems that we have. We all know we have an infrastructure problem, right? Why can't we solve that? I mean, you you just have to go to any airport in 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 most cities in. The, in the United States, I mean, uh, your airport, I don't think has been refurbished for. A, uh, Minneapolis things, has got the right?
0: best one in the country. I'm pretty sure it's, it's. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, if there's any place you want to be quarantined to be Minneapolis, you might as, like. There's people that go there and just hang out at the breweries that are <laughs> at the
2: airport. Oh, okay. but I, that, <laughs> I mean,
0: no, it's. I mean, I travel a lot, like we were talking about, it, and I, I live. You know, I don't get stuck in my own airport, so like I don't care about my own airport. I care about everybody else's that I get stuck
2: at. Well, and, LaGuardia. Is not place i mean they're refurbishing it now but it's not a place you want to be in a in is stuck you know with a delayed flight but look at our roads look at our bridges i mean exhibit a williamsburg bridge exhibit b the brooklyn bridge exhibit c queensborough bridge i mean i you, you can practically you can see all three deteriorating bridges we have bridges you know we have a good chunk of our bridges that are falling down we need more mass transit we need so many things and unfortunately because nobody can talk to each other we can't solve we a can't, problem. can't solve the problem um, look we need a car I think personally we need we you know we need to consider things like carbon taxes we need a whole bunch of stuff but you can't even have that conversation you know in terms of creating compromises because maybe you should have a you know restructure our, our tax system in a way that's revenue neutral but with with other types of taxes carbon consumption, reward things that are good, penalize things that are bad, but we can't have that, that conversation because it's, it's just all like, well. And, and And I agree
0: with you. And I, like, what's so interesting is like, and and we don't have nearly enough time for these rabbit holes, but like you, you have lobbying, which is just totally legal. So you have people that are making, I mean, the average return on investment on a lobbyist is like, I think 1200% or something like that for every dollar spent. So it's like, you can't even have this conversation because the money flows and you know and the, and the politicians and people go back and forth and there but there's no one person to blame you know what i mean that's the most interesting part yeah. is like the whole thing is potentially got yeah, cracks all over but there's a lot of good people
2: that make up that system it's just yes it's a, that's a deep rabbit hole that requires and probably with <laughs> someone some different expertise than me <laughs> but i would say this we need to talk to each other we need going back to the golden rule We need to treat people the way we'd want to be treated. I mean, there's so many, you know, so many different philosophies of life. I think if we just can embrace the golden rule, and I think now's a great time to do it because it limits self deification. It recognizes, I mean, even in a mini way, you can see walking down the streets, people are like afraid to get too close to people. Which is the opposite (laughs) of what you're doing ultimately, I mean, it's not like I'm going to give a hug to people on the street, but a warm smile at this point is a good thing. That's a
0: really good, really good point. It, so tell us about your book, because I think with your journey of growing signature to where you are today and, and you know, what's on the horizon for you personally, and like what, what, what the guts of the book are. I mean, I, I haven't read it, um, yet, but I I looked at the, you know, the, the excerpt that you guys sent over and you get, you, you're broaching a really interesting topic from religion into what you've built and how your, your, your journey ties into it. So why don't you give us a little bit of an, uh, an
2: overview of it? So first of all, thank you. Hopefully you'll enjoy the book when you read it. It's, um, I worked on it five years with all of my spare time. I mean, I gave up bicycling, I gave up a lot of you know, not-for-profit activities, communal activities, just focused on work, my family, and wine. That's the only thing I did. The, I do the lubricant and, of the brain, right? Yeah, it was a lubricant, social lubricant. <laughs> and uh, I you know, so many people think this is like, how did you, you're a chairman of a bank, what did you what are you doing writing a book about religion and atheism? And the funny thing is. That over the course of my career, because people know I'm a believer, that um, I've had all sorts of people ask me questions, Christian, Muslim, and Jew, about monotheism. You know, Scott, you seem like a sensible sort of fellow. How is it you believe in God? Isn't that all Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny? And I I learned that there were really three types of people, one who... Those who thought it was totally irrational to believe in God, but they were going to park their brains at the door and believe. And then there was a second sort of people who thought, second group who thought, this is all bunk, you know, the, the, the Tooth Fairy, the and Santa Claus group. And then the third group was like me, but it was nowhere sort of represented in the literature, which is... I think, and I wrote this book to explain why it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality. All of these folks in the second category kept sending me books, uh, you know, and advising me to read Christopher Hitchens, you know, the, uh, who wrote the Why God Isn't Great, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Sam Harris' Letter to a Christian People, Daniel Dennett, I read Yuval Harari, I talk about him a little bit, really very, very much sort of atheist screeds. And so I looked around for a book that was an answer to those. And stunningly, I really couldn't find the, I found Karen Armstrong's The Case For God. There aren't a lot, and I didn't really agree with a good chunk of what she wrote. So I first actually thought I'd get a group of people together and we commissioned some very smart person to write this book. That was my first my first thought was to get to reach for my checkbook not for my pen and i thought let me get together a group of people and we'll like charter this project and then i realized it wouldn't work first of all i um, i said i was stubborn i so i i had these ideas that i thought i wanted to explain what the bible came to do i wanted why it was so revolutionary i wanted to explain all the bad parts of the bible that people say oh they grab a verse or two and they say this is terrible this is evil i wanted to really and i did think a lot about my father's journey as a holocaust survivor and how he who saw my father who saw the ultimate 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 evil saw his father you know murdered saw his aunts his uncles his cousins i mean my closest relative on his side is a second cousin once removed and that's by accident i mean i could go into that story but this woman, a particular woman, happened to be away, you know, in 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 at the time in Palestine working on a kibbutz. Otherwise, I would probably my closest relative be a fifth cousin once removed. Right, that's crazy. Or twice removed. So uh, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about science in the Bible. I wanted to talk about the historicity of the Bible, and I wanted to talk about prayer because that sort of centers me in a very important way, personally. It's not, you know, doesn't work for everybody, but it. I think it's a very important practice, and in a in a in a more than just a meditative way. So I spent five years doing nothing with my free time but that, and and I think I've I've. I mean, if you when if you have a link and you look at the blurbs, I mean, I've had everybody from Barney Frank to uh, Monsignor Thomas Thomas uh, to Monsignor Thomas Halleck to Republicans, Democrats, Heidi Heitkamp, Pat McHenry, bishops, rabbis, and um, Muslim, great Muslim thinker, thinkers, Professor Khalid Abdul El-Fadal. Who's, uh, you know, everybody who's read the book has found something because I'm trying to get right. I'm not, I'm not telling people what to believe, and I, and I get moral atheists. Because I think there are plenty of moral atheists. I think there are lots and lots of them. Yep, especially I in think today's but world. They, but I think the place that I can be on a common ground with moral with atheists is with the golden rule. Because if we can agree upon that, that everybody has a spark of humanity, I may think that from the Bible everybody has a spark of divinity, but that we're all one. You know, we're all brothers and sisters. Then I'm good with making common cause. Where I have a problem, and this is a serious problem that people don't pay attention to is idolatry because I think there's too much of that going on in the world. You know, how did Hitler and the Assad family and the Kim family and Mao and Stalin and, you know, a whole list goes on and on. How did they do what they did because they were, they were God King Pharaohs (laughs) using the same tropes as, as Pharaoh, you know, poetry, pageantry, um, parades, myth, all of course, backed up with, secret informers and strong armies that were willing to commit tremendous violence and it's the same thing and we're we're living in a day and age where i think the bible nails that explanation and i just felt like this was the most important thing in the world that i could do setting aside you know work and family or family and work i should put it in the right order (laughs) <laughs> well, what I enjoy about
0: the topic and how you approached it is exactly kind of what we talked about for you know a good chunk of this time together, where there's problems and discussions that need to have happen. Like, I mean, you need to have these conversations and then you can get to the truth of things, right? And going back to what I said about Dalio too, I mean, what he, it's about combining the best ideas and the best knowledge, because then the truth will surface. I mean, it just how else can you do it? I mean, like, there's no other way to do it. And like you, like you said, there's either the blind believers or the total BS, but you're not using your brain. And, uh, right. we don't have a, I know you got to run in like a couple of seconds because, but like this topic, I'm a big, cause I actually, I, I grew up as a Lutheran. I went to a Catholic, um, college and I decided to, uh, knock out my liberal arts part with a minor in theology.
2: <laughs> oh, good.
0: Yeah. So again, you will really like my book. <laughs> I know I'm not, a, I'm not even a Catholic, but I'll tell you what, it's about understanding the truth and the concepts behind this. And then you layer on, like I've read an insane amount of, or listened to an insane amount of books over the last decade, Scott, because that's best blessing ever is being able to mm. listen to books. And there's so much science behind we are, the universe and stuff. And again, it's just great when you understand the fundamentals of truth. Right. And it, and it's the same stuff that happens in our economy or
2: religion, and you just have to have these conversations. But you have to think hard because people want to park their brains at the door in many yes. cases and be told what the truth is. They don't want to work hard because there are plenty of people who are willing to tell you what truth is. I mean, Jim Jones told everybody the truth is all they had to do was drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and we have so many people if yeah. you, know, you listen to again MSNBC or Fox people are telling you what the truth is that you have to believe and usually the truth is a little bit different uh, and I don't care if you're on the right on the left the, it doesn't the most matter. important thing is that you know how to disagree with the your with with people who are on your side and by the way I agree with you on um, on uh, the audible books. Cause uh, my book was, uh, is an audible book too. It was written. I, I was, they asked me if I wanted, publisher asked me if I wanted to read it or, and I said, people are not <laughs> going to listen to me to read a whole book, but they got someone who's actually got quite a following himself, Andrew Totlis. Okay. Yeah. Voice is much better than mine. You may have heard him read other books. And, uh, so he does my audible book. That's I, fantastic. I, I, I have to put in that plug for Andrew because he's yeah. really great.
0: So if people want to get in touch with you, uh, you're, follow you, you look
2: yep. at your book, what is the best way to get in touch with you? So I have a website, Scott Shea, two T's, dot And they can get they can get the book. It's available on Amazon. It's available at bookstores. Audible, Kindle, whatever—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's available always. It's going to be coming on paperback in a few months too, but get the hardcover now. And if people want to get in touch, they can write to me via the website. There's a there's a there's an info Perfect. form that I see. And the only thing that I ask because I sometimes get people with chapter length, I try to respond to people. But if you sometimes I get chapter length. Emails, I can't respond to those and I don't really respond to those. But if someone asks me, you know, basic
1: Only real questions, question.
2: yep. not, you know, whatever, you can sometimes get on the internet, um, I try to respond. So
0: I'm going to ask you one question and then we can wrap you up and get you out of here on time is, sure, you know, with the uncertain times that we're at, that we're in, and we're always in uncertain times, right? I mean, but like, I think we we are r- recognizing that we're on, in uncertain times, you would talk to me about your dad, or I'm sorry, it was your dad-grandfather and and Victor yeah. Frank. We talked about how to oh, yeah. how yeah. do we deal with like what are some fundamental truths or one truth that you can leave people with on how to how to navigate this.
2: So, my father, who survived, he was imprisoned first in work camp Svetlana held a Helde work camp, then he was Svetlana held work camp in Lithuania, then he was. Shipped to Auschwitz, then he was shipped to Warsaw after the to clean up and the like, and then he went to Dachau. He was in the he was he was in the concentration camps for quite a long time and forced labor for quite a long time and slave labor essentially not forced labor it was slave labor. And the thing that got him through was he had a belief in the long term. He didn't think he was getting to. He didn't think he would be freed tomorrow or next week or next month, but he did think he would get freed. He thought he would be liberated. And when he was liberated, he was less than 70 pounds. He probably was days away from death. And he was had the good fortune to be liberated by the American forces who sent him to a hospital because if you just gave people food at that point, they died. Yeah. But he had this long-term vision that he would be freed. And people who, unfortunately, thought that they would be freed next month or next, you know, week, didn't make it. And so, it's not going to necessarily get better tomorrow. Look, this isn't the concentration camps. This isn't the Holocaust. This is an this is a bad time that we're going to get over. But we are going to get over it tomorrow. We're not going to get over it next week. Don't think that way. But we are ultimately going to get over it and keep that long term vision in mind. That's what my father would have done.
0: Awesome, awesome note to leave everybody with. I know you got to run. Scott, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: It's been a pleasure to be with you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with
0: Scott. I really loved going back and forth. There's a lot of meat behind it, and there's a lot of things that we don't know about right now. But if there's one thing that you can control, it's the consumption of information right now and what you're going to do when things start normalizing. So I suggest you text us at 668. 866. Text the word intentional and get on our waiting list. So as we're about ready to launch the five principles and the intentional growth video course, you'll be one of the first to know and there'll be some promo codes tied to it. And we're going to be covering all the best material that we cover in our two-day intentional growth boot camp, but it's gonna be for you and it's gonna be digital and it'll only be 295 bucks. And you'll be able to digest all the information while you're sitting at home and while you're preparing for what your plan is gonna be like so you can intentionally grow the value of your business when this is all done, so you can get what you want. There's gonna be a lot of different things going on, but you can control what your plan looks like and then how you're gonna execute when it's all done. So again, text the word intentional to 66866, you'll get an email and a message back, and then we'll send you a bunch of information and we'll put you on the waiting list so that you're the first to know once the video series comes out. With that being said, I really hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.